Good evening, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra. Thank you for listening. Uh, I just wanted to put this quick little thing in here uh, to mark uh, an occasion. This is a very special episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. Uh, when I first started this in June of 2017, uh, I was not very, uh, I, I was sporadic. I was I was not structured. I didn't have a set day that I did it. And um, then my computer broke and um, my, my wife's computer broke and we got this backup computer, which is what I've been using for the last almost year, which I've been using for the last like nine months or so. But she, around the same time, became a mod for a Twitch streamer that she listens to, or that she that she follows. Uh, his name is Tripod GG. He is the self-declared king of Fallout. You should go check him out on Twitch. He's a really good guy, and he does a lot of really fun games. So you should uh, go check him out if you have the time and inclination. But um, because she was a mod for that, and he streamed five days a week, I had like no time to record, and I, I didn't... So there were long patches where there was just nothing from the podcast. So I would record an episode and then six you know, weeks would go by before I did another episode. And it just kind of got hard to do because it was just, you know, I didn't have the, the, the time or the, the uh, uh, stuff to do it. So one day I sat down and I said, I'm going to record an episode Every Monday, because Tripod does not stream on Mondays or Tuesdays. So I'm going to record an episode every Monday. I'm going to release an episode every Monday, and that is going to be the day that I do it. And that day that I said that was January 29th of 2018. Uh, as I record this, it is uh, 10.55 on 10.55 p.m., on January 28th, 2019, this episode, after I edit it, will be released shortly after midnight and uh, will therefore be a year straight of doing an episode every week. And some of you out there are like, yeah, that's so what? Big deal. Let me go ahead and tell you that I am the biggest, most irresponsible loser slack ass idiot on the planet. And this is kind of a thing that I have stuck with for the longest of my own volition. That I have sat down and said, I'm going to do this every day, every week. And I have done it every week for the past year. And I'm very proud of myself for that because it's not really a thing that I have been able to do uh, very much. Uh, and that's not even counting like uh, the National Poetry Month that me and my wife did. And that's not counting Dracula that me and my wife did. Um, and we got those done every day and done and out and... Uh, I was really proud of that. I got Christmas Carol all done and out, and um, it's just been a really great year. I've seen the podcast grow from getting, I don't know, like two or three hits, two or three hits every you know week to getting. I I I I'm now out. I'm now getting over over twenty five to thirty hits a day, and that's really nothing in podcast terms. I know there are podcasts that get like ten thousand hits you know, every day. And that's, you know, good for them. But I'm a nobody from nowhere. I don't advertise. I don't, I don't, you know, do stuff with it. I just put it out there and just let whatever happens happen. And uh, the response has been really nice. So everybody who is listening, thank you all so much for listening. If you have passed word on to your friends about this stupid guy in the middle of nowhere, Georgia, who records stories that are kind of dumb sometimes, 
thank you all so much for that. Um, I'm going to wrap this up because this has been going on for four minutes now. And, uh, I just wanted to say this coming year, I've got a lot of stuff planned. Uh, February, uh, which is starting up in the next, the next episode is going to be fourth wall, February, which is going to feature stories that break the fourth wall and have Lovecraft himself as a character. Um, April, uh, we are going to do a, a poem a day, but it's not going to be just random poems that nobody cares about. It's going to be weird fiction poems, and it's going to be a whole cycle of weird fiction sonnets. I will leave it at that. You can probably figure out what it is from there. And then in October, we're going to do, um, or I'm going to do another October project. It's not going to be as big or as ambitious as Dracula, but it's still going to be something that I'm really looking forward to. And if I was really smart, I would have done it a couple months ago but I wasn't. So that's another little hint about what that's going to be. Anyway, um, I think that'll do it. So I will shut up now because you are sick of listening to me after five minutes of this garbage. And uh, thank you all for listening. And for the only time that I am ever, ever going to say this, because I've never said it before, and pray God I will never, ever say it again. If you really like the podcast, please go give it a, uh, a rating and a review on iTunes. I would really appreciate that. I would like to read, even if it's not good, even if you sit there and you're like, this guy sucks. Like, I don't know what he thinks he's doing, but his quality is terrible and his voice sucks and his stories are garbage. Like, because if I, I would like to know if I'm doing something wrong. So I have the chance to fix it and make it better. That's what I want. I want this podcast to be the best that it can possibly be. So anyway, thank you. If you could give me a, a rating and a review on iTunes, I would really appreciate it. I will never, ever say that again because I really don't like saying that. Um, I'm kind of all squirmy now. Anyway, all right, on with the show. The Thing on the Doorstep by H.P. Lovecraft Part 2 4 Derby had been married more than three years on that August day when I got that telegram from Maine. I had not seen him for two months, but had heard he was away on business. Azanath was supposed to be with him, though watchful gossip declared there was someone upstairs in the house behind the doubly curtained windows. They had watched the purchases made by the servants, and now the town marshal of Chesincook had wired of the draggled madman who stumbled out of the woods with delirious ravings and screamed to me for protection. It was Edward, and he had been just able to recall his own name and address. Chesincook is close to the wildest, deepest, and least explored forest belt in Maine, and it took a whole day of feverish jolting through fantastic and forbidding scenery to get there in a car. I found Derby in a cell at the town farm, vacillating between frenzy and apathy. He knew me at once, and began pouring out a meaningless, half-incoherent torrent of words in my directions. "'Dan! For God's sake! The pit of the Shoggoths! Down the six thousand steps! The abomination of abominations!' I never would let her take me. And then I found myself there. Yeah! Shub Niggeroth! The shape rose up from the altar, and there were five hundred that howled. The hooded thing bleated, Kamog! Kamog! That was old Ephraim's secret name in the coven. I was there where she promised she wouldn't take me. A minute before I was locked in the library, and then I was there where she had gone with my body, in the place of utter blasphemy, the unholy pit where the black realm begins and the watcher guards the gate. I saw a Shoggoth. It changed shape. I can't stand it. I'll kill her if she ever sends me there again. I'll kill that entity. Her. Him. It. I'll kill it. I'll kill it with my own hands. 
It took me an hour to quiet him, but he subsided at last. The next day I got him decent clothes in the village and set out with him for Arkham. His fury of hysteria was spent, and he was inclined to be silent, though he began muttering darkly to himself when the car passed through Augusta, as if the sight of a city aroused unpleasant memories. It was clear that he did not wish to go home, and considering the fantastic delusions he seemed to have about his wife, delusions undoubtedly springing from some actual hypnotic ordeal to which he had been subjected, I thought it would be better if he did not. I would, I resolved, put him up myself for a time, no matter what unpleasantness it would make with Azanath. Later I would help him get a divorce, for most assuredly there were mental factors which made this marriage suicidal for him. When we struck open country again, Derby's muttering faded away, and I let him nod and drowse on the seat beside me as I drove. During our sunset dash through Portland, the muttering commenced again, more distinctly than before, and as I listened, I caught a stream of utterly insane drivel about Azanath. The extent to which she had preyed on Edward's nerves was plain, for he had woven a whole set of hallucinations around her. His present predicament, he mumbled furtively, was only one of a long series. She was getting hold of him, and he knew that some day she would never let go. Even now she probably let him go only when she had to, because she couldn't hold on long at a time. She constantly took his body and went to nameless places for nameless rites, leaving him in her body and locking him upstairs. But sometimes she couldn't hold on, and he would find himself suddenly in his own body again, in some far-off, horrible, and perhaps unknown place. Sometimes she'd get hold of him again, and sometimes she couldn't. Often he was left stranded somewhere as I had found him. Time and again he had to find his way home from frightful distances, getting somebody to drive the car after he found it. The worst thing was that she was holding on to him longer and longer at a time. She wanted to be a man, to be fully human. That was why she got hold of him. She had sensed the mixture of fine-wrought brain and weak will in him. Some day she would crowd him out and disappear with his body, disappear to become a great magician like her father and leave him marooned in that female shell that wasn't even quite human. Yes, he knew about the Innsmouth blood now. There had been traffic with things from the sea. It was horrible. And old Ephraim, he had known the secret and when he grew old did a hideous thing to keep alive, he wanted to live forever. Azanath would succeed. One successful demonstration had taken place already. As Derby muttered on, I turned to look at him closely, verifying the impression of change which an earlier scrutiny had given me. Paradoxically, he seemed in better shape than usual, harder, more normally developed, and without the trace of sickly flabbiness caused by his indolent habits. It was as if he had been really active and properly exercised for the first time in his coddled life, and I judged that Azanath's forces must have pushed him into unwanted channels of motion and alertness. But just now, his mind was in a pitiable state, for he was mumbling wild extravagances about his wife, about black magic, about old Ephraim, and about some revelation which would convince even me. He repeated names which I recognized from bygone browsings and forbidden volumes, and at times made me shudder with a certain thread of mythological consistency or convincing coherence which ran through his maundering. Again and again he would pause as if to gather courage for some final and terrible disclosure. Dan! Dan, don't you remember him? Wild eyes and the unkempt beard that never turned white? He glared at me once, and I never forgot it. Now she glares that way, and I know why. He found it in the Necronomicon, the formula. I don't dare tell you the page yet, but when I do you can read and understand. Then you will know what has engulfed me, 
on, 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 body to body to body. He means never to die. The life glow. He knows how to break the link. It can flicker on a while even when the body is dead. I'll give you hints and maybe you'll guess. Listen, Dan. Do you know why my wife always takes such pains with that silly backhand writing? Have you ever seen a manuscript of old Ephraim's? Do you want to know why I shivered when I saw some hasty notes Azanath had jotted down? Azanath, is there such a person? Why did they half think there was poison in old Ephraim's stomach? Why did the Gilmans whisper about the way he shrieked like a frightened child when he went mad and Azanath locked him up in the padded attic room where the other had been? Was it old Ephraim's soul that was locked in? Who locked in whom? Why had he been looking for months for someone with a fine mind and a weak will? Why did he curse that his daughter wasn't a son? Tell me, Daniel Upton, what devilish exchange was perpetrated in the house of horror where that blasphemous monster had his trusting, weak-willed, half-human child at his mercy? Didn't he make it permanent, as she'll do in the end with me? Tell me why that thing that calls itself Azanath writes differently off-guard so that you can't tell its script from... Then the thing happened. Derby's voice was rising to a thin treble scream as he raved when suddenly it was shut off with an almost mechanical click. I thought of those other occasions at my home when his confidences had abruptly ceased, when I had half-fancied that some obscure telepathic wave of Azanath's mental force was intervening to keep him silent. This, though, was something altogether different, and I felt infinitely more horrible. The face beside me was twisted, almost unrecognizably for a moment, while through the whole body there passed a shivering motion, as if all the bones, organs, muscles, nerves, and glands were adjusting themselves to a radically different posture, set of stresses, and general personality. Just where the supreme horror lay, I could not for my life tell, yet there swept over me such a swamping wave of sickness and repulsion such a freezing, petrifying sense of utter alienage and abnormality that my grasp of the wheel grew feeble and uncertain. The figure beside me seemed less like a lifelong friend than like some monstrous intrusion from outer space, some damnable, utterly accursed focus of unknown and malign cosmic forces. I had faltered only a moment, but before another moment was over, my companion had seized the wheel and forced me to change places with him. The dusk was now very thick, and the lights of Portland far behind, so I could not see much of his face. The blaze of his eyes, though, was phenomenal, and I knew that he must now be in that queerly energized state, so unlike his usual self, which so many people had noticed. It seemed odd and incredible that listless Edward Derby, he who could never assert himself and who had never learned to drive, should be ordering me about and taking the wheel of my own car. Yet that was precisely what had happened. He did not speak for some time and in my inexplicable horror, I was glad he did not. In the lights of Biddeford and Sacco, I saw his firmly set mouth and shivered at the blaze of his eyes. The people were right. He did look damnably like his wife, and like old Ephraim when in these moods. I did not wonder that the moods were disliked. There was certainly something unnatural in them, and I felt the sinister element all the more because of the wild ravings I had been hearing. This man, for all my lifelong knowledge of Edward Pickman Derby, was a stranger, an intrusion of some sort from the black abyss. He did not speak until we were on a dark stretch of road, and when he did, his voice seemed utterly unfamiliar. It was deeper, 
firmer, and more decisive than I had ever known it to be, while its accent and pronunciation were altogether changed, though vaguely, remotely, and rather disturbingly recalling something I could not place. There was, I thought, a trace of very profound and very genuine irony in the timber, not the flashy, meaningless, jaunty pseudo-irony of the callow sophisticate which Derby had habitually affected, but something brim, basic, pervasive, and potentially evil. I marveled at the self-possession so soon following the spell of panic-struck muttering. "'I hope you'll forgive my attack back there, Upton,' he was saying. "'You know what my nerves are, and I guess you can excuse such things. I'm enormously grateful, of course, for this lift home.' And you must forget, too, any crazy things I may have been saying about my wife and about things in general. That's what comes from overstudy in a field like mine. My philosophy is full of bizarre concepts, and when the mind gets worn out, it cooks up all sorts of imaginary concrete applications. I shall take a rest from now on. You probably won't see me for some time, and you needn't blame Azanath for it. This trip was a bit queer, but it's really very simple. There are certain Indian relics in the North Woods— standing stones and all that, which mean a good deal in folklore. And Azanath and I are following that stuff up. It was a hard search, so I seem to have gone off my head. I must send somebody for my car when I get home. A month's relaxation will put me on my feet. I do not recall just what my own part of the conversation was, for the baffling alienage of my seatmate filled all my consciousness. With every moment my feeling of elusive cosmic horror increased— till at length I was in a virtual delirium of longing for the end of the drive. Derby did not offer to relinquish the wheel, and I was glad of the speed with which Portsmouth and Newburyport flashed by. At the junction where the main highway runs inland and avoids Innsmouth, I was half afraid my driver would take the bleak shore road that goes through that damnable place. He did not, however, but darted rapidly past Rowley and Ipswich toward our destination. We reached Arkham before midnight and found the lights still on at the old Crown and Shield house. Derby left the car with a hasty repetition of his thanks, and I drove home alone with a curious feeling of relief. It had been a terrible drive, all the more terrible because I could not quite tell why, and I did not regret Derby's forecast of a long absence from my company. The next two months were full of rumors. People spoke of seeing Derby more and more in his new energized state, and Azanath was scarcely ever in to her callers. I had only one visit from Edward, when he called briefly in Azanath's car, duly reclaimed from wherever he had left it in Maine, to get some books he had lent me. He was in his new state, and paused only long enough for some evasively polite remarks. It was plain that he had nothing to discuss with me when in this condition, and I noticed that he did not even trouble to give the old three-and-two signal when ringing the doorbell. As on that evening in the car, I felt a faint, infinitely deep horror which I could not explain, so that his swift departure was a prodigious relief. In mid-September, Derby was away for a week, and some of the decadent college set talked knowingly of the matter, hinting at a meeting with a notorious cult leader lately expelled from England who had established headquarters in New York. For my part, I could not get that strange ride from Maine out of my head. The transformation I had witnessed had affected me profoundly, and I caught myself again and again trying to account for the thing, and for the extreme horror it had inspired in me. But the oddest rumors were those about the sobbing in the old Crown and Shield house. The voice seemed to be a woman's, and some of the younger people thought it sounded like Azanath's. It was heard only at rare intervals, and would sometimes be choked off as if by force. There was talk of an investigation, 
But this was dispelled one day when Azanath appeared in the streets and chatted in a sprightly way with a large number of acquaintances, apologizing for her recent absence and speaking incidentally about the nervous breakdown and hysteria of a guest from Boston. The guest was never seen, but Azanath's appearance left nothing to be said, and then someone complicated matters by whispering that the sobs had once or twice been in a man's voice. One evening in mid-October, I heard the familiar three-and-two ring at the front door. Answering it myself, I found Edward on the steps, and saw in a moment that his personality was the old one, which I had not encountered since the day of his ravings on that terrible ride from Chesuncook. His face was twitching with a mixture of odd emotions in which fear and triumph seemed to share dominion, and he looked furtively over his shoulder as I closed the door behind him. Following me clumsily to the study, he asked for some whiskey to steady his nerves. I forbore to question him, but waited till he felt like beginning whatever he wanted to say. At length, he ventured some information in a choking voice. Azanath is gone, Dan. We had a long talk last night while the servants were out, and I made her promise to stop preying on me. Of course, I had certain... certain occult defenses I never told you about. She had to give in, but got frightfully angry, just packed up and started for New York. Walked right out to catch the 820 into Boston. I suppose people will talk, but I can't help that. You needn't mention that there was any trouble. Just say she's gone on a long research trip. She's probably going to stay with one of her horrible groups of devotees. I hope she'll go west and get a divorce. Anyhow, I've made her promise to keep away and let me alone. It was horrible, Dan. She was stealing my body. "'crowding me out, making a prisoner of me. "'I lay low and pretended to let her do it, "'but I had to be on the watch. "'I could plan if I was careful, "'for she can't read my mind literally or in detail. "'All she could read of my planning "'was a sort of general mood of rebellion, "'and she always thought I was helpless. "'Never thought I could get the best of her, "'but I had a spell or two that worked. "'Derby looked over his shoulder and took some more whiskey. "'Paid off those damned servants this morning "'when they got back.' They were ugly about it and asked questions, but they went. They're her kind, Innsmouth people, and were hand in glove with her. I hope they'll let me alone. I didn't like the way they laughed when they walked away. I must get as many of Dad's old servants again as I can. I'll move back home now. I suppose you think I'm crazy, Dan. But Arkham history ought to hinted things that back up what I've told you, and what I'm going to tell you. You've seen one of the changes, too in your car after I told you about Azanath that day coming home from Maine. That was when she got me, drove me out of my body. The last thing I remember was when I was all worked up trying to tell you what that she-devil is. Then she got me, and in a flash I was back at the house, in the library where those damned servants had me locked up, and in that cursed fiend's body, and isn't even human. You know it was she you must have ridden home with, that praying wolf in my body. You ought to have known the difference. I shuddered as Derby paused. Surely I had known the difference, yet could I accept an explanation as insane as this? But my distracted collar was growing even wilder. I had to save myself. I had to, Dan. She'd have got me for good at Hollowmass. They hold a Sabbath up there beyond Ches and Cook, and the sacrifice would have clinched things. She'd have got me for good. She'd have been I, and I'd have been she. Forever. Too late. My body had been hers for good. She'd have been a man and fully human, just as she wanted to be. I suppose she'd have put me out of the way, 
Killed her own ex-body with me in it, damn her, just as she did before. Just as she did, or it did before. Edward's face was now atrociously distorted, and he bent it uncomfortably close to mine as his voice fell to a whisper. You must know what I hinted in the car. That she isn't Azanath at all, but really old Ephraim himself. I suspected it a year and a half ago, and I know it now. Her handwriting shows it when she goes off guard. Sometimes she jots down a note in writing that's just like her father's manuscript, stroke for stroke. And sometimes she says things that nobody but an old man like Ephraim could say. He changed forms with her when he felt death coming. She was the only one he could find with the right kind of brain and a weak enough will. He got her body permanently, just as she almost got mine, and then poisoned the old body he'd put her into. Haven't you seen old Ephraim's soul glaring out of that she-devil's eyes dozens of times, and out of mine when she has control of my body? The whisperer was panting and paused for breath. I said nothing, and when he resumed, his voice was returned to normal. This, I reflected, was a case for the asylum, but I would not be the one to send him there. Perhaps time and freedom from Azanath would do its work. I could see that he would never wish to dabble in morbid occultism again. I'll tell you more later. I must have a long rest now. I'll tell you something of the forbidden horrors she led me into. Something of the age-old horrors that even now are festering in out-of-the-way corners with a few monstrous priests to keep them alive. Some people know things about the universe that nobody ought to know, and can do things that nobody ought to be able to do. I've been in it up to my neck, but that's the end. Today I'd burn that damn Necronomicon and all the rest if I were librarian at Miskatonic. But she can't get me now. I must get out of that accursed house as soon as I can and settle down at home. You'll help me, I know, if I need help. Those devilish servants, you know. And if people should get too inquisitive about Azanath. You see, I can't give them her address. Then there are certain groups of searchers, certain cults, you know, that, that might misunderstand our breaking up. Some of them have damnably curious ideas and methods. I know you'll stand by me if anything happens, even if I have to tell you a lot that will shock you. I had Edward stay and sleep in one of the guest chambers that night, and in the morning he seemed calmer. We discussed certain possible arrangements for his moving back into the Derby mansion, and I hoped he would lose no time in making the change. He did not call the next evening, but I saw him frequently during the ensuing weeks. We talked as little as possible about strange and unpleasant things, but discussed the renovation of the old Derby house and the travels which Edward promised to take with my son and me the following summer. Of Azanath we said almost nothing, for I saw that the subject was a peculiarly disturbing one. Gossip, of course, was rife, but that was no novelty in connection with the strange menage at the old Crown and Shield house. One thing I did not like was what Derby's banker let fall in an over-expansive mood at the Miskatonic Club, about the checks Edward was sending regularly to a Moses and Abigail sergeant and a Eunice Babson in Innsmouth. That looked as if those evil-faced servants were extorting some kind of tribute from him, yet he had not mentioned the matter to me. I wished that the summer and my son's Harvard vacation would come so that we could get Edward to Europe. He was not, I soon saw, mending as rapidly as I had hoped he would, for there was something a bit hysterical in his occasional exhilaration, while his moods of fright and depression were altogether too frequent. The old derby house was ready by December, yet Edward constantly put off moving. Though he hated and seemed to fear the crown and shield place, he was at the same time queerly enslaved by it. He could not seem to begin dismantling things, and invented every kind of excuse to postpone action. 
When I pointed this out to him, he appeared unaccountably frightened. His father's old butler, who was there with other reacquired servants, told me one day that Edward's occasional prowlings about the house, and especially down cellar, looked odd and unwholesome to him. I wondered if Azanath had been writing disturbing letters, but the butler said there was no mail which could have come from her. It was about Christmas that Derby broke down one evening while calling on me. I was steering the conversation toward next summer's travel when he suddenly shrieked and leapt up from his chair with a look of shocking, uncontrollable fright, a cosmic panic and loathing such as only the nether gulfs of nightmare could bring to any sane mind. My brain! My brain! God damn, it's tugging! From beyond! Knocking! Clawing! That she-devil! Even now! Ephraim! Kamog! Kamog! The pit of the Shoggoths! Yah! Shabnigurath! The goat with a thousand young! The flame! The flame! Beyond body! Beyond life! In the earth! Oh, God! I pulled him back to his chair and poured some wine down his throat as his frenzy sank to a dull apathy. He did not resist, but kept his lips moving as if talking to himself. Presently I realized that he was trying to talk to me, and bent my ear to his mouth to catch the feeble words. Again. Again she's trying. I might have known. Nothing can stop that force. Not distance, nor magic, nor death. It comes and comes, mostly in the night. I can't leave. It's horrible. Oh, God, Dan, if you only knew as I do just how horrible it is. When he had slumped down into a stupor, I propped him with pillows and let normal sleep overtake him. I did not call a doctor, for I knew what would be said of his sanity, and wished to give nature a chance if I possibly could. He waked at midnight, and I put him to bed upstairs, but he was gone by morning. He had let himself quietly out of the house, and his butler, when called on the wire, said he was at home pacing about the library. Edward went to pieces rapidly after that. He did not call again, but I went daily to see him. He would always be sitting in his library, staring at nothing and having an air of abnormal listening. Sometimes he talked rationally, but always on trivial topics. Any mention of his trouble, of future plans, or of Azanath would send him into a frenzy. His butler said he had frightful seizures at night, during which he might eventually do himself harm. I had a long talk with his doctor, banker, and lawyer, and finally took the physician with two specialist colleagues to visit him. The spasms that resulted from the first questions were violent and pitiable, and that evening... A closed car took his poor struggling body to the Arkham Sanitarium. I was made his guardian and called on him twice weekly, almost weeping to hear his wild shrieks, awesome whispers, and dreadful droning repetitions of such phrases as, I had to do it. I had to do it. It'll get me. It'll get me. Down there. Down there in the dark. Mother. Mother. Dan, save me. Save me. How much hope of recovery there was, no one could say, but I tried my best to be optimistic. Edward must have a home if he emerged, so I transferred his servants to the Derby Mansion, which would surely be his sane choice. What to do about the Crown and Shield place with its complex arrangements and collections of utterly inexplicable objects I could not decide, so left it momentarily untouched, telling the Derby household to go over and dust the chief rooms once a week, and ordering the furnace man to have a fire on those days. The Final Nightmare came before Candlemas, heralded in cruel irony by a false gleam of hope. 
one morning, late in January, the sanitarium telephoned to report that Edward's reason had suddenly come back. His continuous memory, they said, was badly impaired, but sanity itself was certain. Of course, he must remain some time for observation, but there could be little doubt of the outcome. All going well, he would surely be free in a week. I hastened over in a flood of delight, but stood bewildered when a nurse took me to Edward's room. The patient rose to greet me, extending his hand with a polite smile, but I saw in an instant that he bore the strangely energized personality which had seemed so foreign to his own nature, the competent personality I had found so vaguely horrible, and which Edward himself had once vowed was the intruding soul of his wife. There was the same blazing vision, so like Azanath's and old Ephraim's, and the same firm mouth, and when he spoke I could sense the same grim pervasive irony in his voice, the deep irony so redolent of potential evil. This was the person who had driven my car through the night five months ago, the person I had not seen since that brief call when he had forgotten the old-time doorbell signal and stirred such nebulous fears in me. And now he filled me with the same dim feeling of blasphemous alienage and ineffable cosmic hideousness. He spoke affably of arrangements for release, and there was nothing for me to do but assent, despite some remarkable gaps in his recent memories. Yet I felt that something was terribly, inexplicably wrong and abnormal. There were horrors in this thing that I could not reach. This was a sane person, but was it indeed the Edward Derby I had known? If not, who or what was it, and where was Edward? Ought it to be free or confined, or ought it to be extirpated from the face of the earth? There was a hint of the abysmally sardonic in everything the creature said. The Azanath-like eyes lent a special and baffling mockery to certain words about the early liberty earned by an especially close confinement. I must have behaved very awkwardly, and was glad to beat a retreat. All that day and the next I racked my brain over the problem. What had happened? What sort of mind looked out through those alien eyes in Edward's face? I could think of nothing but this dimly terrible enigma, and gave up all efforts to perform my usual work. The second morning the hospital called up to say that the recovered patient was unchanged, and by evening I was close to a nervous collapse, a state I admit, though others will vow it colored my subsequent vision. I have nothing to say on this point, except that no madness of mine could account for all the evidence. 5. It was in the night, after that second evening, that stark, utter horror burst over me and weighted my spirit with a black, clutching panic from which it can never shake free. It began with a telephone call just before midnight. I was the only one up and sleepily took down the receiver in the library. No one seemed to be on the wire, and I was about to hang up and go to bed when my ear caught a very faint suspicion of sound at the other end. Was someone trying under great difficulties to talk? As I listened, I thought I heard a sort of half-liquid bubbling noise. Which had an odd suggestion of inarticulate, unintelligible word and syllable divisions. I called, Who is it? But the only answer was, I could only assume that the noise was mechanical, but fancying that it might be a case of a broken instrument able to receive but not to send, I added, I can't hear you. Better hang up and try information. Immediately I heard the receiver go on the hook at the other end. 
This, I say, was just about midnight. When the call was traced afterward, it was found to come from the old crown and shield house, though it was fully half a week from the housemaid's day to be there. I shall only hint what was found at that house. The upheaval in a remote cellar's storeroom, the tracks, the dirt, the hastily rifled wardrobe, the baffling marks on the telephone, the clumsily used stationery, and the detestable stench lingering over everything. The police, poor fools, have their smug little theories and are still searching for those sinister discharged servants who have dropped out of sight amidst the present furor. They spoke of a ghoulish revenge for things that were done and say I was included because I was Edward's best friend and advisor. Idiots. Do they fancy those brutish clowns could have forged that handwriting? Do they fancy they could have brought what later came? Are they blind to the changes in the body that was Edward's? As for me, I now believe all that Edward Derby ever told me. There are horrors beyond life's edge that we do not suspect, and once in a while man's evil prying calls them just within our range. Ephraim, Azanath, that devil called them in, and they engulfed Edward as they are engulfing me. Can I be sure that I am safe? Those powers survive the life of the physical form. The next day, in the afternoon, when I pulled out of my prostration and was able to walk and talk coherently, I went to the madhouse and shot him dead for Edward's and the world's sake. But can I be sure till he is cremated? They are keeping the body for some silly autopsies by different doctors, but I say he must be cremated. He must be cremated. He who was not Edward Derby when I shot him. I shall go mad if he is not, for I may be the next. But my will is not weak, and I shall not let it be undermined by the terrors I know are seething around it. One life, Ephraim, Azanath, and Edward. Who now? I will not be driven out of my body. I will not change souls with that bullet-ridden lich in the madhouse. But let me try to tell coherently of that final horror. I will not speak of what the police persistently ignored, the tales of that dwarfed, grotesque, malodorous thing met by at least three wayfarers in High Street just before two o'clock, and the nature of the single footprints in certain places. I will say only that just about two, the doorbell and the knocker waked me. Doorbell and knocker both, plied alternately and uncertainly in a kind of weak desperation, and each trying to keep Edward's old signal of three and two. Roused from sound sleep, my mind leapt into a turmoil. Derby at the door, and remembering the old code. That new personality had not remembered it. Was Edward suddenly back in his rightful state? Why was he here in such evident stress and haste? Had he been released ahead of time, or had he escaped? Perhaps, I thought, as I flung on a robe and bounded downstairs, his return to his own self had brought raving and violence, revoking his discharge and driving him to a desperate dash for freedom. Whatever had happened, he was good old Edward again, and I would help him. When I opened the door into the elm-arched blackness, a gust of insufferably fetid wind almost flung me prostrate. I choked in nausea, and for a second scarcely saw the dwarfed, humped figure on the steps. The summons had been Edward's, but who was this foul, stunted parody? Where had Edward had time to go? His ring had sounded only a second before the door opened. The collar had on one of Edward's overcoats, its bottom almost touching the ground and its sleeves rolled back, yet still covering the hands. 
On the head was a slouch hat pulled low, while a black silk muffler concealed the face. As I stepped unsteadily forward, the figure made a semi-liquid sound like that I had heard over the telephone. And thrust at me a large, closely written paper impaled on the end of a long pencil. Still reeling from the morbid and unaccountable fetter, I seized the paper and tried to read it in the light from the doorway. Beyond question, it was in Edward's script. But why had he written when he was close enough to ring, and why was the script so awkward, coarse, and shaky? I could make out nothing in the dim half-light, so edged back into the hall, the dwarf figure clumping mechanically after, but pausing on the inner door's threshold. The odor of this singular messenger was really appalling, and I hoped, not in vain, thank God, that my wife would not wake and confront it. Then, as I read the paper, I felt my knees give under me and my vision go black. I was lying on the floor when I came to, that accursed sheet still clutched in my fear-rigid hand. This is what it said. Dan, go to the sanitarium and kill it. Exterminate it. It isn't Edward Derby anymore. She got me. It's Azanath, and she has been dead three months and a half. I lied when I said she had gone away. I killed her. I had to. It was sudden, but we were alone and I was in my right body. I saw a candlestick and smashed her head in. She would have got me for good at Hallowmas. I buried her in the farther cellar storeroom under some old boxes and cleaned up all the traces. The servants suspected next morning, but they have such secrets that they dare not tell the police. I sent them off, but God knows what they and others of the cult will do. I thought for a while I was all right, and then I felt the tugging at my brain. I knew what it was. I ought to have remembered. A soul like hers, or Ephraim's, is half-detached and keeps right on after death as long as the body lasts. She was getting me, making me change bodies with her, seizing my body and putting me in that corpse of hers buried in the cellar. I knew what was coming. That's why I snapped and had to go to the asylum. Then it came. I found myself choked in the dark, in Azanath's rotting carcass down there in the cellar under the boxes where I put it. And I knew she must be in my body at the sanitarium, permanently, for it was after Hallowmas, and the sacrifice would work even without her being there, sane and ready for release as a menace to the world. I was desperate, and in spite of everything, I clawed my way out. I'm too far gone to talk. I couldn't manage to telephone, but I can still write. I'll get fixed up somehow and bring this last word and warning. Kill that fiend if you value the peace and comfort of the world. See that it is cremated. If you don't, it will live on and on, body to body forever, and I can't tell you what it will do. Keep clear of black magic, Dan. It's the devil's business. Goodbye. You've been a great friend. Tell the police whatever they'll believe. And I'm damnably sorry to drag all this on you. I'll be at peace before long. This thing won't hold together much more. Hope you can read this. And kill that thing! Kill it! Yours, Ed. It was only afterward that I read the last half of this paper, for I had fainted at the end of the third paragraph. I fainted again when I saw and smelled what cluttered up the threshold where the warm air had struck it. 
The messenger would not move or have consciousness any more. The butler, tougher fibered than I, did not faint at what met him in the hall in the morning. Instead, he telephoned the police. When they came, I had been taken upstairs to bed, but the other mass lay where it had collapsed in the night. The men put handkerchiefs to their noses. What they finally found inside Edward's oddly assorted clothes was mostly liquescent horror. There were bones, too, and a crushed-in skull. Some dental work positively identified the skull as Azanath's.